0: If you knew of a product that could help athletes reduce concussions by over 99%, wouldn't you want it? If NFL athletes like defensive back Daniel Sorensen of the Kansas City Chiefs and New Orleans Saints used it, wouldn't you want it? As athletes get bigger, stronger, and faster, we're seeing an increase in the amount of concussions in contact sports. According to the National Football League, concussions increased by 18% in the 2022 regular season. We're also seeing an increase in concussions in other sports. According to the Centers for Disease Control, there are between 1.6 and 3.8 million sports-related brain injuries every year. But there's new technology out there where data has shown to reduce concussions by 99.98%. We at the Football Learning Academy are driven to help athletes improve safety and reduce injuries. We've seen the effects on older players and want to do what we can to make contact sports safer for those who participate. That technology that we're talking about is the Power Plus mouthguard. Unlike other mouthguards, this is worn on the lower part of your jaw. How it works is that it shifts the position of your jaw to an optimally physiologically aligned position to reduce the G force impact on your brain. If that's not enough, the Power Plus mouthguard has shown to increase an athlete's performance by increasing strength, stamina, and oxygen intake, all while allowing you to speak normally while wearing the device. The Power Plus Mouthguard works for every sport and is very easy to customize to each individual in order to position your jaw at its optimal physiological location for your unique bite. Over-the-counter Mouthguards are one-size-fits-all. The PowerPlus Mouthguard is revolutionary, and the data has shown results. Of the over 6,500 athletes that use the PowerPlus Mouthguard, the amount of diagnosed concussions was 0.2%. If you're an athlete or the parent of an athlete, you'll want to learn more about the PowerPlus Mouthguard. Go to PowerPlusMouthguard.com to learn more and tell them that the Football Learning Academy sent you. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the Football Learning Academy, an online school teaching pro football history. To learn more about the Football Learning Academy, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, a portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. If you like what you hear on this or any of our episodes, give us a five-star rating and review on the podcast platform. It helps us grow our podcast so that we can continue to bring you quality content. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor for our show, email us at admin at football-learning-academy.com to talk about the various options available to you. We'd love to talk to you about adding you to our team. Now on to our episode. Today's special guest is historian and author Mike Richmond. He has authored four books, including his most recent, titled George Allen of Football Life, which is the subject of this interview. He has also written The Redskins Encyclopedia, The Washington Redskins Football Vault, and Joe Gibbs, An Enduring Legacy. He has also written thousands of feature and news articles for such publications as The Washington Post, The Baltimore Sun, and Sports Illustrated. Now let's get to our interview with historian and author Mike Richmond. I'd like to welcome historian Mike Richmond to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you doing today, Mike?
1: Doing well, Ken. Thank you very much for having me on your show.
0: Well, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. You just recently published a book on George Allen. So why was it important to you to write this book?
1: George Allen coached the Redskins at a time when I was very young, and I just became hooked on that team. I was 10 years old when Allen came to DC in 1971 and that was the first true NFL team that I rooted for. I did pull for the Baltimore Colts a little bit because they were they were great around that time. If you recall they went to Super Bowl 5, the one one Super Bowl 5, so they were a really good team Johnny Unitas a quarterback team. But being a DC native, I grew up in Montgomery County, Maryland, DC suburb. So that was my team, came to know Allen, admired him very much as as a head coach and uh, learned a little bit about his eccentricities even at that time. Came to know the players and uh, knew them by name, number, one of whom appeared at my father's men's clothing store in a promotional appearance, running back Charlie Haraway. So I just became so attached to that team. At the same time, I gained a love for history as a kid and I I saw they had a talent as a writer, as a kid. So then the years uh, go on, I broke from my High school newspaper, college newspaper, that's the career I chose uh, as a profession, uh, journalism, and embarked on a literary career as well. Uh, this is my fourth book, George Allen, A Football Life. So in terms of his, uh, beyond that, in terms of his worthiness uh, for a definitive biography, uh, he's the third all-time uh, leading coach in NFL history for those who have won at least 100 regular season games in winning percentage. He has a seven-twelve winning percentage. Uh, Madden is first, and then Lombardi, and then Allen. Allen is also a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame and um, never had a losing season in his coaching years in the NFL. That's a phenomenal mark. Uh, He um, then later, two seasons coaching in the USFL, all 14 seasons, uh, never had a losing year. So, definitely, he was definitely worthy of a definitive biography.
0: Now you would mention this is your fourth book. Tell me a little bit about the other three that you've written.
1: Sure. My first book was the Redskins Encyclopedia It was published in 2007. It was a look at the team from its inception in 1932. They started as the Boston Braves in 1932, all the way to what was then the present through the 2006 season. So that was, was 75 years of Redskins history season by season. I wrote biographies, uh, on all of the Redskins who were in the Hall of Fame at the time, including Allen, and also other Redsk other great Redskins players. So there were a lot of bios in there, a lot of statistics. That was my first book. The Washington Redskins Football Vault was published in 2010. That was a memorabilia heavy book. It was uh, replicas of game programs, press passes, ticket stubs. But I wrote the text for that book. And uh, at the time, from what I understood, there was only one other NFL team that had a book like that, uh, which was the Buffalo Bills. There was several other colleges that, that had that type of book. Uh, 2015, I wrote Joe Gibson' and Enduring Legacy. That was published by his foundation, Youth for Tomorrow. That was, a very, that was a photo-heavy book. I wrote all of the captions for the photos in the Redskins and NASCAR chapters, uh, someone else who had been aligned with him through Youth for Tomorrow. Uh, she did the uh, chapter on youth for tomorrow, as well as his uh, spiritual chapter. And then this now we yeah, have my fourth book, George Allen, a football life.
0: Now, talk to me about George Allen's personality and his coaching style.
1: He was just a very, he had his quirks, he had his eccentricities. He was just a, a different type of coach than you would think of his coaching peers, like his peers at the time or Don Shula, Chuck Noll, Tom Landry. I mean, they were straight-laced. I mean, you knew basically what you were getting out of them, which really wasn't much of a personality at all. With Alan, I mean, he, he was just a, a lot different to the way he handled himself, the way he handled himself with the media. He wanted the media to basically be cheerleaders at the time. He was very guarded in what he shared with the media, which is really, in that sense, he was ahead of his time. But he was also a cheerleader. He wanted them to be a cheerleader. Instead of being critical of his team, he wanted them to be more, you know, root for the Redskins more uh, in D.C. But he had had that um, as a coach. I mean, he, he was brilliant. He was such a workaholic and he was so detail oriented. He knew so much about the opposing teams. As the saying goes, I mean, his his plan was to know more about the team, his opposing Upcoming opponent than they actually knew about themselves. Now that's really impossible, but that that was what he tried to attain. A, a, as a coach, he really he was one of the first twenty four seven workaholic coaches, and uh, and he was in, an innovator as a coach. He established schemes uh, on defense, which are still part of the game today: the five and six man defensive backs, nickel and dime defenses. He was known as the first coach who really had mini camps. When he was with the Los Angeles Rams starting in 1966, he introduced the first true minicamp that year. Uh, he wanted the players to to be focused on football in the offseason, much more so than his, than his coaching peers. Um, also, he was really big on free agency. And let me explain. In 1976, there was an unfettered year of free agency in the NFL. I mean, I, there was a situation where the players and, and owners, I mean, they, they couldn't come to some type of agreement. So they just said, you know, we're, we're just going to open it up, let anybody sign a free agent that they want to, and any of the, the teams. Allen took full advantage of that. He signed free agents much more so than any of, any of the other uh, coaches or GMs in the team. By the way, he was both the coach and the general manager for the Washington Redskins. Um, he signed John Riggins, uh, Gene Fugit, um, Calvin Hill, uh, and uh, Pat Sullivan, who uh, quarterback, who actually never ended up playing for him. But he really took advantage of free agency much more so than other coaches. And that was actually a precursor to the way a lot of, you know, a lot of what we see today, a lot of the emphasis on free agency and, and building your teams that way. Now there's one other thing that needs to be taken into consideration. Allen really didn't have much of a draft to work with. I mean, he had traded so many draft picks away. He really, he didn't trust rookie players. He trusted veteran players a lot more, which is the direction he wanted to go in uh, with the Rams. And then he took it to a a much higher level with the Redskins. He just dealt so many draft picks away like a deck of cards. So he really didn't have too many draft picks to work with at the time. And uh, early on when he came to DC, you know, the reporters were saying, Hey, you know, the more draft picks you trade away, you're going to mortgage the future, which really kind of did, did come true toward the end. I mean, he never had a losing season in D.C., but toward the end, 9-5 and in 1977, they were good, but they were not a great team like similar teams in that era, such as the Steelers and the the Cowboys, Los Angeles Rams, for that matter, uh, Minnesota Vikings. The Redskins were not at that level at the time. They they were a good team. But Allen, what he did is he, he tried to take advantage of a free agency, much more so than any other coach or general manager did that year.
0: You mentioned the Rams. So let's start talking about his pro career. In 57, he was hired as the offensive ends coach for the Rams under Sid Gilman. Talk to me about that experience for him, even though it was only a single season.
1: Right. Well, on paper, it was kind of a strange hiring. I mean, Allen was a, was a defensive specialist. And even in college, he was coming off a his college coaching career, he had coached three years in Morningside and three years at um, uh, at Whittier Whittier College in, in Los Angeles. I'm sorry, uh, three years at Morningside and six at, at Whittier, nine years total. So he was coming off that experience. In college, he was known; at, he had already earned the reputation as a defensive-oriented coach. It was an offense it was kind of like three yards in a cloud of dust with him. So it was interesting that he was hired at the as the offensive ends coach. So in my research for the book, I caught up with uh, Sid Gilman's daughter and I, I said, I asked her, well, why would your father hire him as the offensive ends coach if he was so focused on defense? And she said, because he wanted his his expertise and his knowledge for understanding from an op- offensive perspective, defenses on the, on the other side, you know, how they would line up, whatever. So, uh, you know schemes positioning he he wanted that you know Sid Gilman wanted that uh, type of um knowledge as part of his coaching staff so but unfortunately allen was let go after one season um the most definitive thing that i could find in in the newspapers that i researched is that he was let go after the season nothing really was worded like that but you really had to, to come to that conclusion because he was only one of two coaches who left that coaching staff after the season. And he he didn't have a job lined up either. He was, he was without a coaching job for, you know, six to eight months until the, the bears uh, took him in early in the 59 season. Well,
0: let's talk about that uh, role with the bears. What did he do and what was his impact with the bears?
1: He was first hired as the head talent scout for the bears uh, early early in the 59 offseason. That's what, why Halas first brought him in one of the uh, bear staff uh, members. He, he passed away. So, so the position was open. Actually what happened is when Alan was out of coaching, he was selling weighted footballs. And so he made his way into the bears training camp and that's how he met Halas or he, he became further acquainted with him. I think they had met at a, Allen was very, very, uh, he, w- he was daring. He was bold in the sense. He made his way into an uh, NFL coaches session of some type. He actually made his way into Sid Gilman's summer training camps as well. That's how he came to know Gilman. But so he came to know Hallis beforehand. Anyway, he became further acquainted with him when he got into the Bears training camp. Hallis brought him in as a spy because Hallis knew that he coached with the Los Angeles Rams. Hallis brought him in as a spy. For two late season Bears games in '58, because Bears had two games against the LA Rams, and then uh, Hallis hired him as the head talent scout uh, in '59. He held that role through the uh, end of the '62 season. He actually took over on an interim basis for Clark Shaughnessy as the defensive coordinator late in the '62 season. Then he became uh, he was fully hired as the defensive coordinator early in the 63 off season. And then he became the architect of that great bears defense in 63, which paved the way to that. The bears winning the championship that year.
0: Now in 66, he went back to the Rams, but this time as head coach. Um, but then that started a legal battle with Hallis. What can you tell me about that legal battle?
1: Sure. So after the 63 championship win, I mean, Allen was a, was a hot name on the coaching market. I mean, there are other teams. Why wouldn't you want to be interested in him? I mean, he was uh, he he was the person who wanted to be hired by opposing teams. And so here we we come to the '65 season. Allen is still on the staff of the Chicago Bears. The Rams job opens up. Dan Reeves, Rams owner, offered the job to to Allen. Allen accepted. Well, Hallis didn't like that. There was some propri- proprietary information that was written in, in Allen's Bayer's contract. And I actually saw this uh, in the Allen archives that I researched at the Proof of Hall of Fame. Uh, and it said, you know, you, you have this um, special knowledge of, of, of the Bears organization. So Hallis cited that in a court case. He challenged him, took it to civil court in the Chicago area, Cook County uh, Civil Court, um and uh, or, i'm sorry circuit court the judge actually ruled for hallis in the case and so based on that allen had to stay with the bears hallis though he he stood up at the end of the uh, uh the trial session he says listen your honor uh george allen is free to go to whatever team he wants to go to i think what hallis hallis had won the case based on principle he wanted to prove something you know, he, he won, you know, he got what he wanted. He let Allen go to become the head coach of the Los Angeles Rams.
0: Now, during this time, Allen was the first one to hire a special teams coach. Who was that well-known coach that he hired to coach special teams?
1: He hired Dick Vermeil in 1969. Vermeil was previously with Stanford University. Uh, so Allen hired him as special teams coach. That was another area. Of the game that, that Allen was a tremendous innovator, not only defense but special teams as well. He was far beyond his his coaching peers in terms of his emphasis on special teams uh, practice. He put a lot of time into the game in, into the, that uh, as, aspect of the game. Um, in 1967, just to give you an example of of the focus that Allen had on special teams, uh, Tony Gillery, a backup Rams linebacker. But the special teams captain, he blocked a punt late in a game against the Green Bay Packers. Late in that '67 season, the Rams were trailing 24 to 20 at the time. There was like uh, you know, a minute and a half left. Blocks a punt. Uh, Rams recovered. Run it down the five yard line. Roman Gabriel throws the winning touchdown pass to uh, to Bernie Casey. Great win for the Rams. Allen's carried off the field after the game. The following week, they beat the mighty Baltimore Colts in the season ending game and that got the rams into the uh, into the playoffs that year when they lost to the packers in the in the opening round i just to get, tell you about that colts team that colts team just like the rams that year finished 11-1 and 2 and did not go to the playoffs Now, that would be unimaginable today i just think an 11-1 2 team not going to the playoffs or that was a 14 game uh, season back then. I mean, you have teams with losing records that are winning divisions today, seven teams per conference going into the playoffs. Um, that didn't exist then. Uh, but so just just to give you like a, a snapshot of the competitiveness of the NFL at the time. So back to your, your point about Dick Vermeil, Allen hired him as a special teams coach in 1969. And also the same year, the Eagles hired Marv Levy as their true special teams coach as well. So those two were the first special teams coaches, Vermeil and Levy, in 1969. Now,
0: 1970, Allen's released from the Rams again. What happened there?
1: Allen had been fired, actually, one time prior to that. In another surreal event in his life, we spoke about the, the court case with, uh, with Hallis. This was another surreal event. After the firing, following the 1968 season, Allen called for a press conference he wanted to somehow get you know make make his point that he wanted his job back and what he did is he, he he told the players about it. he told his rams players about 20 of them veteran rams players showed up at the press conference uh, roman gabriel deacon jones ed metter um who else uh merlin olson he was there his veteran players and they they basically said listen dan reeves if you don't rehire george allen we're quitting. So, and they were coming off a great season too. They didn't make the playoffs in 68, but they finished 10 and one. It's another example of a great team, not making the playoffs, finished 10 and one. Um, So Allen had them on a roll. The players did not want to lose him as the head coach. They said, you need to rehire him uh, Reeves or, or, or or we're quitting. And uh, Reeves would have been left with like a, you know, totally youthful team uh, all rookie team or whatever. Uh, so Reeves rehired him about three weeks later. Now, Reeves was quoted as saying, it's in my book, that he didn't rehire him because of what the, the player said. You know, he just felt uh, it, actually the team doctor actually, who who Alan was very close with, he set up a meeting between Alan and Reeves. And um Alan got, you know, he he had a little bit to drink. He really didn't didn't drink that much. So he was he was laughing a lot. Reeves, who was actually a big drinker, it, it was a jovial atmosphere, and then shortly after that, uh, Reeves rehired him as, as the head coach uh, in in January of '69. So then Reeves fired him again after the '70 season. This time there was no situation of a rehiring. Um, and and um, by the way, after the '68 firing, the Redskins were already after George Allen, uh, Edward Bennett Williams, the Redskins uh, minority partner. Uh, He wanted Allen, the two had actually met at a NFL meeting in Hawaii after the 66 season. Allen also knew Jack Kent Cook, who was the, uh, he had the majority uh, percentage of the team at the time, so, uh, and both Cook and Williams wanted Allen after the 68 season, so then after the 70 firing, they, that's when they lured him to D.C., Following his second firing by the Rams, this this time they didn't they didn't miss on Allen. They got him to uh, to coach the Redskins in uh, January of seventy one.
0: Did he have uh, full control of the team when he got to Washington?
1: Yeah, absolute control of everything. They hired him, uh, coach, general manager. He had control of the the draft, a trade, uh, player contracts. You name it, he had control of everything. They they gave him you know full authority to do what he wanted. And one of the first things he did is he built Redskins Park. Which was a state of the art facility at the time. He located it in uh, Chantilly, Virginia, which was really a remote area at the time, very close to Dallas Airport. He wanted them away from the city, you know, quiet, uh, focused on football. That was George Allen. He, you know, just thinking about football the whole time. You know, uh, de- details, 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 and the players really bought into it. They loved Redskins Park. They loved the facility, and but that that was him. So, but actually, that was le- what led to. Edward Bennett Williams' famous remark at the Redskins' welcome home luncheon prior to the '71 season: I gave him an unlimited budget, and he exceeded it. <laughs> that was what uh, Redskin Park, which cost five hundred thousand dollars at the time, that was a lot of money. And Williams, you know, he was uh, uh, referring to Allen's big spending ways with Redskin Park, and also the the big the big salaries were starting with Allen uh, hiring the the veteran players coming in, Ron McDowell and. Uh, he hired the Ramskins, he paying them a lot of money, Jack Pardee and Dyron Talbert, a lot of those guys who he coached with the Los Angeles Rams. So uh, uh, he got uh, he got uh, Pettibone, too, who he coached with the Chicago Bears and later coached him with the Rams, too. I mentioned McDowell. He got the Berlin Biggs from the Jets. Uh, really, really great uh, defensive lineman. Um, so, yeah.
0: So after the 77 season, He's let go by Washington, goes back to the Rams, but that time is extremely short. Uh, Tell me about that.
1: Sure. Well, one thing that I I explained in the book, and this this has been like a common narrative uh, about Allen in, in D.C. He was not fired after the 77 season. Williams actually offered him a contract extension before the 77 season started. Allen never signed it the extension did not include the same general manager duties, which he had had before that I explained. It didn't have that. Also, there was no um, ability for Allen to buy into the team, a stock option clause, which actually did exist in 1971. Allen never took advantage of it. It was not in the contract, but Jack Kent Cook had written to Allen separately in a letter saying that 5% stock option is there if you want to buy into it. Allen never did, but... Following the 77 season, you can imagine the Redskins were a much more lucrative franchise. The big television contracts were starting at the time with with the network. So the Redskins were a much more lucrative franchise. Allen wanted to take advantage of it. That wasn't part of the the contract. So at the same time, he and his wife, Etty, still owned their home in the Los Angeles area. Uh, So Allen went back to L.A. The, The Rams job was open. Chuck Knox left the Rams after the 77 season. Carol Rosenblum, the Rams owner, was just fed up with him. Even though the Rams were a really, really good team, they were making you know either the NFC playoffs or the NFC championship game. <laughs> they weren't getting to the Super Bowl. So Rosenblum was really fed up with Knox. And so uh, Knox left. He walked after the 77 season, took the Buffalo Bills job. Allen, the, the door was open. Allen took the Rams job. Uh, but even in the opening press conference, when Rosenblum introduced Allen in January of 78, you can tell that Rosenblum had him on a short leash. Rosenblum was making comments like, and it was kind of, it was, I think he insinuated that he was kind of joking, but he said something like, well, if Allen doesn't, if George Allen doesn't make the Super Bowl, then we're going to have to reconsider his contract or something like that. So you could tell he had him on a short leash. So, Fast forward to to training camp exhibition season. Uh, Allen was let go after two exhibition games. There were things going on in training camp, like Allen had this no water policy, which the doctors doctors actually warned him about. They said, George, you know you can't do that. This was in the uh, the really warm Southern California temperatures, summer temperatures. You can imagine how, you know how how you know the doctors were feeling about that. It was, it was pretty scary. But he but you know it very well he wasn't the only coach to actually do that. There were other coaches in the league who actually did that over the years. So he had that. He had this no trash policy on the field. The players, like Fred Dreyer was one of the Rams defensive end at the time, he told me the players didn't really appreciate that. It was kind of like micromanaging. They didn't like that about Allen. Actually, Dreyer told me in an interview he wanted Don Correale, his college coach, uh, his college coach from San Diego State, because the Rams had a had a great defense, so the defense was already there, which was actually another odd aspect to the, the Allen hiring. I mean, he was a defensive-oriented coach, but Rosenblum wanted him because he had this formula for beating the Dallas Cowboys. While he didn't really – he had trouble beating the Minnesota Vikings, he knew how to beat Landry and the Dallas Cowboys, who the Rams were losing to, In the playoffs, they were also losing to the Vikings. But uh, so that's actually the reason Rosenblum wanted him. So, uh, but Dreyer wanted Coriel. He wanted Coriel for his his offensive, you know, air Coriel. He thought the Rams would score 50 points a game. So Rosenblum, uh, he hired Allen. So, yeah, fired him after two exhibition games. One thing that happened, which um, I I, according to Dreyer, this took place. Now, uh, Doug Krikorian, a... Uh, Southern California He was a uh, reporter for a Southern California newspaper at the time. He was daily beat reporter for the Rams. He denied this, but Dreyer told me that Allen traded Isaiah Robertson to the Green Bay Packers. Now Allen did not have the authority to do that. Isaiah Robertson, the Rams linebacker, who who uh, uh, Robertson did disliked Allen, did not want him hired as a coach. Allen, uh, I guess, in turn disliked him and you know wanted him out. He wanted to you know change things up regarding the, the linebackers. So he somehow was in contact with the Packers. He tried to exercise his trade to to the Packers of, of Robertson. Well, when Dreyer heard about it, actually Jack Jack Youngblood and Dreyer, Allen told him about it after a practice. And both of those guys were, were like, coach, do, do you have the authority to do this? And both those guys were, were, were like taken aback by the whole thing. So apparently word got to um, – to Rosa Bloom and, and the coaching staff about that. They didn't really appreciate it, appreciate that. Now, Doug Krikorian actually denied that that story ever took place. He said, quote, maybe I have dementia, but I don't remember. I, I, I cranked out seven stories a week on that team. I don't remember that happening, but whatever, you know, I mean, I did that, uh, that compare and contrast in, in the book, but uh, what, you know, these things were building up. There was like, a rebellion on the part of the players so allen was let go after two exhibition games he later admitted and he's quoted in the book as saying this that he left a really great job in washington he really regretted not taking advantage of that that contract extension opportunity that he had with that williams had offered him prior to the 77 season
0: one thing i was wondering if you could uh enlighten me on was noted in the early '80s that Allen had tried to get a coaching job with the Bears, but was rejected by George Hallis. Is that true?
1: That is true. Uh, He wrote a letter to uh, to Hallis after the '81 season. I guess uh, Neil was a Neil Anderson. Neil Anderson was a Bears coach who was fired. Allen, I think Allen, if I'm correct, uh, I, I do have a write up on this. Allen contacted him during the season in anticipation of something happened. And then he also wrote a letter to him after the season. But Hallis, being Hallis, he held such a grudge against Allen for what happened in the, in the mid-60s with Allen leaving, taking the head coaching job with the Rams. I think Hallis was, when that whole circumstance took place, he was just acting like a petulant child. I mean, you have to let an assistant coach go if he has a head coaching opportunity with another team, Halas felt slighted. Um, Allen uh, actually wanted the head coaching job of the bears. Halas never hired him as the head coaching job. He, he, he never as the head coach. He later hired a Gibran, I believe who was just, a you know, really, he was a horrible coach. Um, but uh, so fast forward to 81, uh, Halas would not hire Allen for that head coaching position. That's when he hired Mike Ditka.
0: What's the legacy that George Allen leaves behind when it comes to pro football?
1: First being, being an innovator, defense, special teams, uh, all the other things that he, he was really a step ahead of his his coaching peers that like I mentioned, the mini camps, um, free agency, instant replay. He was really, really big on as well. Uh, In fact, in the 75 season, there were several calls he felt went against the team, I don't know if you recall a 1975 game the the Redskins had against the St. Lu- then the St. Louis Cardinals in St. Louis. Uh, Mel Gray. Uh, he was the intended target of a of a Jim Har pass with, with seconds remaining in that game. Gray, th- the ball hit him in the chest. Pat Fisher was there almost simultaneously, knocked the ball out. Gray's feet never hit the the ground the officials initially ruled it an incompletion then after uh, conferring they ruled it a touchdown T- uh, cardinals tie the game at the end of regulation they wanted it overtime with instant replay today that would not have been a touchdown the redskins would have won that game uh, likely would have uh, gone to the playoffs that year, which they they ended up not doing. There were other, there was one other call in, in a game the Redskins had against the Oakland Raiders that game that that went against them. Uh, Al, so Allen was a big proponent of instant replay as well. So that those um, things taken all told, taken into consideration, that's a big part of his legacy. Uh, was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in two thousand two. Uh, like I mentioned, third all time in winning percentage among coaches with at least 100 uh, regular season career victories, never had a losing season in the NFL, 12 years coaching in the NFL in 21 of his 24 years, all told in the, in the, uh, um, in professional coaching, including his time with the, uh, with the Rams and previously with the Rams uh, as assistant and with the bears as an assistant and had talent scout had uh, only two losing seasons, it was part of only two losing seasons, 1960 and 1964 with the Bears. So, I mean, the guy was just addicted to winning an amazing legacy. And I'm glad that uh, he finally got his due with his induction into the Hall of Fame in 2002. And I'm glad that I, uh, I was able to write the definitive biography on George Allen.
0: All those accolades, why did it take so long to get into the Hall of Fame?
1: As explained to me by Len Shapiro, who... Was he was actually a beat reporter for the Washington Post, covering the Redskins in the seventies. Later, he was on the selection committee for the Hall of Fame, the regular selection committee. He ex- and then he was later on the seniors selection committee. He explained to me that the initial resistance was because of Allen's postseason record. He only had a two and second two and seven postseason record. He lost his only Super Bowl appearance, Super Bowl Seven, to the Miami Dolphins. Uh, he got knocked out of, the, out of the playoffs three times in the first round, so he had he had a just a pathetic postseason record. So Shapiro explained to me that that was the reason the regular selection committee would not um, select him for induction into the Hall of Fame. But then when he got to to the seniors, that's when Shapiro made made a huge push, another huge push for his induction. Shapiro was actually the um, uh, the person who was most lobbying for Allen's induction, uh, Shapiro made a big, big push again. And also uh, at the same time, this was around, uh, was the early two thousands, a NFL films produced a documentary on Allen called the George Allen story, winning is living, losing is dying. So, which, which told the story of George Allen and you know how everything that I just said, you know, how he was addicted to the game, that football was his life and all the things that he introduced in the game, uh, you had reporters David Israel from the formerly of the Washington Star, Shapiro, uh, Kerkorian was part of that. You had Allen's family talking in that that documentary. So the concurrence of um, of the uh, documentary plus, uh, Shapiro lobbying for Allen's induction in, into the uh, Hall of Fame. He got this got the nod in, in 2001. Um, I, I guess it, back then, maybe it was maybe it was early 2002 like today, and then he was inducted in the summer of 2002. But to answer your question, the initial reason, I, from what I understand, was because of his his poor playoff record.
0: Okay. Let's have a little fun here. Can you relay the story about George Allen almost playing a game of checkers with Albert Einstein?
1: Oh, sure. I would love to do that. That is uh, a very big anecdote in the book. But uh, Allen was in the Navy, the, V 12 program in college. He had been to several schools as part of the the V 12 program. The the program was to train naval officers who would eventually go into combat during World War II. So, but but at the same time, give them a a college education. So, Alan was was first at Alma College um, in Wisconsin, then he was at uh, Marquette, then he ended up at Princeton University. So, Albert Einstein was an adjunct professor at Princeton at the time. It's a major coincidence. Uh, and Allen was a great checkers player, and he thought, "Hey, you know, I want to challenge Albert Einstein to a game of checkers." So he said, "You know, what better person for me to beat than Einstein? You know, a, a genius. Even this was prior to the atomic bomb, but uh, um, but uh, Einstein was still known as a as a genius then. So Allen was thinking, "What better person for me to beat?" in checkers than Albert Einstein. So uh, one Sunday morning after church, uh, Alan and a friend of his, they got on the bus, they took it over to, uh, to Einstein's house um, near the Princeton campus. So uh, Al, uh, Einstein's assistant answers the door in a deep German accent. She, she says, uh, Professor Einstein will be down to see you soon. So uh, uh, Alan and his friend walk in, Einstein comes flying down the stairs, You know, hair flying everywhere. Um, <laughs> So, And this is very uncharacteristic of George Allen. So Einstein says to him, oh, sure, I'll play you in a game of checkers. Did you bring a board? Allen says, darn, I forgot to bring a board. And that was so antithetical of of George Allen. I mean, he was so uh, preparation-oriented throughout his life. So um, they didn't play a game of checkers. But they would have if Allen had brought a board. But Einstein also said he was not a... A checkers player. It's, he said, people say all kinds of things about me, but it, uh, I, I don't play checkers. Actually, one other interesting um, part of that story is that when Alan and his friend were leaving Einstein's house, as, as Alan told it, Einstein made this this um, movement with, with his arms, spread his arms, and went boom. And Alan didn't know exactly what he was talking about at the time, but in later years figured out he was talking about the atomic bomb. While Einstein was not a part of the Manhattan Project. he was consulted on the on the creation of the bomb. I guess his, his theory of relativity was was part of the uh, the creation of the atomic bomb, which was was actually used uh, several months later but uh, so that that's the answer to your question about how Alan nearly played Albert Einstein in a game of checkers.
0: How can people purchase a copy of the book and learn more about what you're doing?
1: Sure. Well, if you want an author, autographed copy, go to my website, MikeRichmondJournalist.com. Uh, it's also available on Amazon, but if you want that, uh, John, Han- you want my John Hancock, uh, MikeRichmondJournalist.com, i be happy to personalize it for you. But, uh, those are the two major ways you can, you can obtain George Allen of Football Life. All
0: right. Sounds great. Mike, thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much for having me on, Ken. Certainly appreciate the invitation.
0: I hope that you enjoyed our interview with historian and author Mike Richmond. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. To learn more about the Football Learning Academy, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, Portion of all proceeds generated at the football learning academy go to help retired players in need that website again is www.football-learning-academy.com if you like what you've heard with this or any of our episodes give us a five-star rating and review on the podcast platform it helps us grow our podcast so that we can continue to bring you quality content If you're interested in becoming a sponsor for our show, email us at admin at football-learning-academy.com to talk about the various options available to you. We'd love to talk to you about adding you to our team. Thank you for listening.